As you're doing that, there is a picture up on the screen. Uh, we're going to do some trivia today. This would be awesome if anyone can answer this one. Can anyone tell me who that is? What's that? Copernicus, exactly. Nicholas Copernicus. Um, Nicholas Copernicus was uh, a man who was born in Poland in the year 1473. 21 years later, he graduated from college from the University of Krakow. Uh, he was uh, what we would call kind of a dual major. He studied both painting and mathematics, which is a pretty awesome dual major. I can't do either one. And so uh, it's like um, he could just do it all, I guess. Uh, painting and mathematics, but he graduated with a degree in painting and mathematics, and um, his family may have said the same thing with my family when I graduated with a degree in philosophy, which is, that is so fantastic. So what are you going to, you know, do with that? And his uncle came up with an idea. His uncle, with whom he was very close, uh, got him a job in a cathedral near his hometown uh, working as a canon in the cathedral. And that meant that he kind of helped organize a lot of the church life. Uh, he helped care for the elderly and for the sick. He actually cared for his uncle and his uncle's uh, final years while he was in declining health. Copernicus was a pretty amazing guy. And he actually worked in the employment of the Roman Catholic Church his entire life. He was, uh, as long as he was working, he was uh, a canon in various cathedrals around Poland. He also, however had a hobby, a hobby that he pursued in his spare time. Uh, as he kind of learned more about this hobby, he wrote some small pamphlets that uh, were read by a few people who weren't widely read. But these pamphlets uh, and this hobby and this pursuit of, his, uh, of this hobby grew and grew and grew to the point that he wrote an elaborate and long book. It's one of the most important books in world history. It's one of the most um, certainly important books in Western history. And it was also incredibly controversial. He knew it was going to be controversial. He didn't really publish it until he was uh, at the very end of his life. There's a story that the first copy printed of his book was given to him while he was on his deathbed. Okay, and, uh, and he knew that it would uh, not be popular, and it wasn't. The Roman Catholic Church banned it immediately. Uh, most Protestant churches and organizations also banned it immediately. Uh, politicians spoke out against it. It was really seen uh, by many people as a work of great evil. Now, here's qu question number two. Trivia question number two. Can anybody tell me the title of that book? And here's something to make you feel really inferior, okay? Or maybe just show how smart you are. You can show off now. In one of our earlier services, someone knew the original title in Latin, which was how... So, just so you know, um, you got a long way if you want to be impressive. So first off, Latin. Latin, anybody? Okay. Second, in English, English translation. Anybody know the title of this book? It's one of the most important books in history. You cannot Google it. That's the, you, I appreciate your honesty, though, Monique. I appreciate your honesty in that. It was called On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. That was the title of this book, On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. And can anybody tell me, last question, why it was so controversial? What's that? Didn't say that the world was round. It was related to that. It, was, it had to do with... Worlds revolving around the sun. Um, 
back here because because you raised your hand and you did it decently in order, you're going to get the credit for that. Um, <laughs> off of these wild people just yelling out answers all over the place. He wrote this controversial book that essentially said that the earth was not the center of the universe. For a couple of thousand years in the West and in European thought, it was generally accepted that the earth was the center of things. And that made sense, right? It made sense for a number of reasons. It made sense because we can go outside and we can look up in the sky and we're still, right? And the sun's just sort of like moving in the sky above us throughout the day. And so it makes sense that it's moving around us while we're still. We can go out at night and see the planets and the stars moving around in the sky. We can see the moon changing positions. And, and so we observe that. It, it, it makes sense, right? If we're really honest, it also makes sense with a part of human nature, a heart of, part of human nature that we all have. And this part is we love being the big idea. We love being the center of things. We love our schedules working on our time. We love watching our shows. We love that it's our values. We have all these different kinds of things where we love it when our worlds kind of operate where things revolve around us and our desires. And so to say that the world's the center of the universe, you know, people kind of hear that and they're like, yeah, that feels right. I feel like we should, we should be kind of the center of things. I mean, that, 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 that resonates inside. And finally, it agreed with the teachings of the church. The church over a couple of thousand years had become so convinced that this was true and that, that the earth was the center of God's creation that they would point to passages of the Old Testament like Genesis and say, well, God created the heavens and the earth and then God created the earth and we as human beings were the last thing and we're sort of the pinnacle of this. So it makes sense biblically that the whole universe God created, that the earth was the point and we as human beings are kind of the top of the pyramid. We're, we're the ultimate point and example of what God was doing in creation. So the church believed it. It goes with human nature. It went with natural observation that uh, people just said, yeah, we're the center of things. We're the big idea. We're in the middle. And then Copernicus came along, writing in his book saying, no, 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 no. We're not the big center of things. Everything in creation is not revolving around us. We are one of thousands and indeed millions of heavenly bodies that are revolving around something else, other suns. The sun in our solar system is actually the centerpiece of our, of our uh, galaxy and the other planets and the stars that are rotating around that. The moons are rotating around us, but we are rotating around something bigger. Historians look back on this. It was a, it was a, a, ground, it was a ground-shaking discovery. And historians look back and they have a term for what the teachings of Copernicus did and how it changed Western thought. They call it the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution is the term historians use to talk about what happened when it became, started becoming widely taught and known that we're not the center of things anymore. I believe in the passage of scripture as we're continuing with our series, working our way through James today, that in a sense, he is sort of describing a kind of Copernican revolution that you and I need to go through. You and I need to go through as followers of Jesus, where we're continuing to find ways of saying, we are not the big idea. And it's not all revolving around us, but we need to be part of a bigger story. The passage of scripture is from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And I invite you to just reflect and listen on God's word. Who's wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the, in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that we would gain a proper sense of where we find meaning in the order of things and how we can come alive in embracing this truth. We pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in these five verses from James that finish chapter three, uh, James is kind of writing about two wisdoms, he says, two kind of schools of wisdom. Now, the first kind of wisdom that he talks about in this passage is what he describes as earthly wisdom. Now, when he talks about earthly wisdom, he's actually talking uh, and using a term that Greek philosophers used at around his time, where philosophers were talking about different kinds of wisdom. They acknowledged that there were different schools, different thoughts, and indeed different levels of wisdom. And James is saying here is that this is kind of an earthly wisdom. And in Greek thought, that meant that it was a form of wisdom, but it wasn't the highest form of wisdom. It was an acknowledgement that, that while it's true, there are greater truths than it. And James means that here. He's saying that there is an earthly wisdom, but it's not the purest. It's not the highest form of wisdom. He's also, in saying that it's earthly, saying that it's natural to us. It's universal. When he talks about this earthly wisdom and how it can kind of lead to bad practices and how it can be selfish, um, he, he's not somebody that wants us to sit there and go, oh, I know, I know some people who have that wisdom, right? My spouse has that wisdom. Uh, my neighbor has that wisdom. My boss has that wisdom. My supervisor has that wisdom. My neighbor has that wisdom. The person next to me in class has that wisdom. We can all point to where we're like, selfish, envious? Yes, I know where that lies. He's going, this is natural. This is earthly. All of us have this. He says at its core that this earthly wisdom, he writes, is driven by kind of two main uh, forces that are at work in our hearts. He says that the first force, he writes here, is selfish ambition. And the second force is envy. It kind of describes the sort of mindset that Copernicus was writing into. This idea of, you know, I'm being driven by my goals, my ideals, my sense of what's going to bring fulfillment, my things that I need to achieve in life in order to find fulfillment in the ways I want to, my morality, even what we hear today is my truth. There's kind of a movement today of people going, man, I'm doing this new thing I'm claiming, and it's kind of my idea of truth. And James is going, there's nothing new or creative about that. That is as old as humanity. It is as old as the world where we sit there and say, I am the center of things. I am the final authority of what's right. I am the final authority of what's good. I am the final authority of what my life is going to be about. I'm the final authority of morality. What works for you, your truth may not be my truth. It's a very natural thing, James is saying, that all of us have and all of us do where we see ourselves in this way. And James says that, that while that might be tempting in the moment, while it might be wonderful to hear that, you know, you can just have it in 30 minutes or less guaranteed exactly the way that you order it because it is all about you. He says as tempting and as wonderful as that is in the short run, in the long term, that does not produce what he writes as good results. So the last thing he says about this earthly wisdom in these verses is he says that this kind of wisdom, living this out over the long haul, produces two things, he says. It produces um, wickedness, and it produces disorder. 
wickedness and disorder. There's a kind of a disorder in our lives. When things aren't clicking wrong, when things aren't right, one of the things James is saying, or when we look at our culture or our world and things aren't going the way we know that God wants it to, he says, if you look back at the core of what's going on at the root and all of that, lots of times it's going to be that people are doing what people naturally do, which is they're making themselves the point, right? Well, this is just what I want. And when you start from there, it produces a kind of disorder over time. Let me give you an example, because these are kind of abstract concepts, but they're very important. Example is uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine when I started seminary, who was starting seminary at the same time. His name was uh, David. David um, was somebody that stood out in our entering seminary class straight from the beginning for numerous reasons. Um, And the reasons uh, were that he was just sort of like, well, when he talked about selfish ambition or envy, David was someone I was envious of. Okay, I'm just confessing that to you. The reason we were all envious of David is because when we started uh, our first day in seminary, we had this big fall convocation, this opening worship service. We had a guest preacher come in and all the students of Columbia Seminary were there and all the faculty and all the staff. It's this big kind of event, right? And then after the event, there was this huge luncheon, luncheon where all the students, all the faculty, all the staff came and attended. And at one point in the luncheon, they introduced those of us who were first year students, the entering class. And the way they did it is that the president, it may have been the president or the dean of students or somebody, somebody stood up at this lunch and said, we're going to tell you how excited we are about this first year class. We're going to tell you how excited we are about what they bring and the gifts that they bring. And how they did it was they did this little exercise of saying one of the students in the entering class did this, right? And they'd give these examples. They didn't give names. So they were like, one of the students in the entering class worked in a pet store, One of the students, because that's exciting for ministry, one of the the students in the entering class was a ruling elder in their church. One of the students in the class was someone who lived in Japan for the last two years. That was me, right? And I remember when they said that, and, you know, people looked around in this big hall and like, oh, I wonder who lived in Japan for two years. You're like, I I lived in Japan for two years. You know, they didn't give the name, but it was just these interesting facts. And in the midst of that, and it's kind of droning on, and people are kind of eating their food and kind of losing attention, the person, the speaker says, one of the entering students in the class was an academic all-American swimmer at Harvard. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> you kind of look around going, who was that? Well, it was David. He was like 6'4". He was built like a swimmer. Um, he was smart. He went on and got his PhD in Old Testament studies. He was humble. He was handsome. He was disgusting. It was somebody that just like bothered you on every angle. You're like, is there a flaw? Is there a chink in the armor? Um, although it was great when you were in first year classes and people would say, okay, we're going to work on a group project. And everyone's going, uh, I got David. Uh, I, my group project is I am working with the academic All-American from Harvard uh, to, to come and work with us. So David was just kind of known from the beginning for being the academic All-American at Harvard, although he didn't carry himself that way at all. One class, I was fortunate enough to get to work and be assigned to work with David on this group, one of these group projects we were doing. And um, David and I had actually become really good friends. And so this one day I went down to his apartment to work on our group project. As I walked in and, you know, he's there in his apartment and his wife was there and she was like perfect and wonderful and disgusting too. Uh, You walk into this perfect life and things in their apartment weren't perfect. You know that sense like when you walk into a room and there's just like a tension there. You're like, okay, what is this? Like what's, what's going on? Now I didn't have kids at the time. And what had happened was about four months before they had had twins. 
And there's things like sleep deprivation and stuff that comes along with it they were in the middle of that I hadn't experienced the joys of yet. And so uh, I kind of walk in, you're like, huh, this is, this is odd. This is not right. This is not like Harvard academic all-American setting. This feels tense and weird and, and stuff. And David goes, man, he goes, we can't do any work here. We can't, we can't get anything done. Uh, let's just go up to the library. We'll go work somewhere else. And you know, we kind of walked out of the apartment and you're like walking up next to him up to the library going, you okay? Like, this seems, this seems strange. And you know, we had a big project here. I need the academic All-American. I feel like you're giving me like 3% of your capacity right now. So let's rectify whatever it is that's going on um, to get things right. And as we're walking, he said to me, he said, this is so hard. He goes, we are having the hardest time. And we are having the hardest time because I used to be able to study whenever I wanted to study. I used to be able to like just dictate my own schedule about when I wanted to do things and when we were going to have meals and how my academics revolved around that. And we can't do that anymore. And he said, you know, even what feels worse, and I feel bad saying this, but it's true. He said, I actually feel jealous of my own children. I was like, what? They're four months old. They're adorable. They're twins. How do you? He said, I feel jealous of them. I feel like in my home for my wife, I am the bottom priority now. I feel like she is paying all attention to them and, and, and I am just receiving the leftovers and she's receiving my leftovers. And it's just not right. This is just not how things are supposed to be. Now, I'm not telling you any of that throwing David under the bus. Actually, that was an important part of the process for David of wrestling with that and of coming to a new place. David had the insight and the courage to say out loud what James says all of us have within us. All of us have those places where he was wrestling with, and you're all wrestling with it, and so am I today, of what are those places we're going, this just isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's just not working on my schedule. It's just not functioning for me the way it's supposed to. James is saying there is this earthly wisdom that is born out of selfish ambition and envy that lives in us, that sees ourself and our desires as the center of how things ought to operate, and everything else ought to kind of rotate around us and how they're supposed to function. Where is that for you? Where are those places where there is just a disorderliness to things? And might that be some of the core of what's going on? What does that look like in your life? But James goes on to say that that's not the only kind of wisdom. There's a second kind, he says. It's a kind of wisdom that is personified in Jesus. It's not a wisdom or a life's direction that is determined by my desires, my intentions, my goals, me being the center of things. He says that it's born out of a sense of purity. It's born out of a sense of gentleness. It's born out of a spirit of seeking to serve. It's born out of what Jesus did and lived and ministered to and showed us, which is one who constantly was saying, what is the will of God in these places? Who taught us to pray saying, thy will be done rather than how you and I normally live, which is my will being done. He embodied something totally different. And James says that when you and I can find those ways, when we find those, that wisdom in our life and in our hearts, he says that there's a different result. There's different fruits. That this, this kind of self-centered, uh, me-first way, assuming that, that that creates what he calls wickedness and disorderliness. But when we are driven by a different wisdom, a gentleness, uh, a seeking to serve, he says the results of our life are different. 
and that he writes that there is both peace and righteousness. He said these are the results and fruits of our lives. And where there is peace and where there is righteousness, you often will find people at the core of it who are seeking to live for something larger than themselves, seeking to serve a cause or stand for something that is larger than just themselves. And James is saying is that that is the call of each and every Christian. That the call that maybe the way to think about it is that the basic movement of, of discipleship, of becoming a disciple and followers of Jesus is moving from this first kind of earthly wisdom and moving in different ways to this second kind of wisdom. Not because it's a rule, not because God tells us to, not because other people get to have more fun, but if we do this, then we get to go to heaven and then it's all magically better there. We do this, James is saying, because when we do it, that's when we come alive. That's when we experience the fullness of life. That's when we come to understand what Jesus says that abundant living is truly like. And so the movement James is getting us to see is where are those places of disorder and, and wickedness that exist in us? How might that be the result of a core of seeing things out of our own point of view with us as the center of the universe? And what does it mean to have our lives instead revolving around something, someone who is larger than us and placing those things in orbit around Jesus? It's a Copernican revolution that James is describing, a spiritual Copernican revolution. Think about how we did this uh, a few weeks ago when we started the James series. This is one example of this kind of Copernican revolution and how you put it into practice. We did a, an experiment uh, at the beginning of this where we gave out $100 bills to five different volunteers in all four of our worship services. So five people had, it hap uh, had that happen in here. And then we asked over the next week or two, we said, what we want you to do is we want you to think about this money differently if you weren't here. What we said is, is that rather than just kind of going out and spending 100 bucks, like, oh, I got 100 bucks, so I can go kind of do what I want to do with it, is we want you to take this $100, see it as the church's money, understand that we're going to be asking you how you did it, and what does God want you to do with this? Don't follow the rules. Don't, you know, what does God want you to do? Pray about it. Think about it. And people wrote in, the, the 20 volunteers, some of them shared in worship, you might have heard in the, the, the following weeks, a lot of them wrote, and we put all their responses on our website, is the things that they learned, the things that they discovered when they started taking this $100 and saying, what does God want me to do with this? And what we did is we gave them no bounds, and what you saw in that was that when people reflected and used the money as they thought God wanted them to, you didn't see anyone come back going, well, we gave it away, but I wish we had spent it on ourselves. You didn't see anybody come back going, I wish we'd just gone out to dinner to a nice place that we can't normally afford. Nobody did that. They had the options to. None of them did it. And the reason is because there is this idea that even when we see ourselves through that, that, that first wisdom, that earthly wisdom, when we see our money in that way, that we can buy all the stuff we want. We can buy all the cars, all the clothes, all the neighborhoods, and our kids all ride the schools. We can just throw as much as we want to at that problem. And although none of it's bad, in the end, if we are just simply seeing money as the product for our enjoyment and happiness and, and getting ourselves ahead, there will always be a void of meaning in our hearts and in our lives. But when we say, God, what do you want with this? How do you want me to use this as you called us to in extravagantly generous ways? You had people just coming alive in these conversations of the things that God can do when we use our money the way God wants. That's one example of a Copernican revolution. 
Not saying, what am I going to do with this and how can I use this for my world and to reinforce everything about my worldview, but how can I use this? What does God want of this? Let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me talk to people. Let me wrestle. Copernican revolution. Your homework assignment is to take further steps in this call of James to see life through Jesus. What I want you to do is get your, your note card out. Because you can leave here today and just sort of go, oh, that's an interesting thought, or, and it won't make an impact. But James is inviting us, we said, to, to put our faith in action here. So this week, I want to invite you to consider how to put that in action. Here's what I want you to do. At the top of your note card on one side, um, I want you to write, don't take up the whole note card, just a little bit at the top, a little title. I want you to write, a Copernican revolution. Copernican is spelled this way. C-O-P-E-R-N-I-C-A-N. A Copernican revolution. That's the term historians use for Nicholas Copernicus teaching. C-O-P-E-R-N-I-C-A-N. A Copernican revolution. And I want you to take these note cards with you. I want you to have it as a note card because you can put it in your pocket, you can put it in your purse, you can put it in your wallet. I want you to keep it with you this week. And the assignment is this. The assignment is, is to look at the results, the fruit of life, and to ask yourselves, where are the places, as James describes, where there is wickedness or disorder in my life? Where are the places? Maybe it's like David. It's uh, my friend David. It's, it's with your fa- children. It's with your spouse. It's with the person you're dating. It's with a friend. It's with someone in your family. It might be at work. It might be in, 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 in with yourself. There's just not this peace or this, this shalom, this wholeness for yourself. Where are those places where you're seeing disorder? And just write them down. Write them and keep it with you and write it down. We're not going to get you to read these next week. You can be as honest as you want to be. This is for you. Maybe you share it with your spouse or a friend or, 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 or the person in your small group. But just write down, where is their disorder? And I want you to consider, and the work is taking these areas and asking the question, what does it mean to turn these areas over to God? Okay. What does it mean that that potentially, James is saying, what's at the core of that disorder might be that you've made yourself the center of things. It happens to us all, naturally, even when we don't intend for it to. And what might it mean to say in this relationship, in my marriage, what does it mean to to, to turn this over to Jesus? In my life, what does it mean to turn this over to Jesus? In my work, what does it mean to turn this over to Jesus? What does it mean to experience a Copernican revolution and say, Lord, this is yours, If you're not certain what it means, look in scripture. Talk to uh, some of the pastors. Talk to John. He just graduated from seminary. He's got all the answers to anything you would ever want to know. You know, what what is a Copernican? What does it mean to dedicate my marriage to Jesus? But there's disorder there, and I got to see that. Write it down. Spend some time working on that this week. 500 years ago, a Polish amateur astronomer changed the world forever by suggesting we were not the centerpiece of things. My friends, if we take this teaching from James seriously, we might experience a similar revolution of God working in our lives in the days that are to come. May we go forward seeing what God has in store for us all. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this week. We ask that you would help us to live lives that are completely turned over to you. 
lives because we want to come alive. We want to come to life and experience it in abundance. May we continue to find ways to get out of the way and to place you at the centerpiece of all that we are and all that we do. May we experience the fullness of what you intend and all that we're about. Reveal to us this week how we can be turning things more and more over into your hands, into the hands of Jesus. Teach us, guide us, mold us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song.